So I don't know if you, you noticed in that reading, or maybe you've seen it in some of the others, but for a series on the healings of Jesus, the description of the healing itself, if there even is one at all, is often minuscule. You, you really don't get very much of it. And so for that reason, our focus in this series is not so much on the healings themselves, like the mechanics of how the healing worked, but we're looking really at what the healing achieves. What is the point of a healing? What does it do? And in a word, it is restoration. So when he was healed, that the leper in week one was restored to his family and to his friends. And above all, of course, the leper was restored to worship. He was able to return to the temple or the synagogue and participate in the worshiping life of of his community. And that servant in, in week two, when he got healed, he was restored to freedom and he was restored to dignity and, and, and comfort. But above all, of course, he was restored to work. You've got worship and you've got work. Now you are healed, you can do a thing. So my question to you this morning is, if you are restored today in some way, what are you going to do? What is the point of you being restored? What will you do if healing comes to your house today? Let's turn to Matthew 8, verse 14. So short you may have memorized it, but if you didn't, let's have a look at Matthew 8, 14. Jesus entered Peter's house. So this is Simon Peter, it's the disciple. Mark tells us in his version of this account that the house also belonged to his brother Andrew, that's another one of the 12. So we can assume from this that, that Peter's house would be a familiar place, somewhere probably they went to many times. It is a different setup to the, the one we had in weeks one and two of this series, where strangers were involved. This is far more intimate, I believe. And as Jesus himself had no home of his own, it is highly likely that they went back to Peter's house all the time to refresh. This was a little bit like coming home. And as they started to come home, if you watch The Chosen, the TV show, you see that things are prepared. There's a frenzy of activity when news reaches the home that the boys are coming home. And, and so everyone, I think, probably would look forward to this. The travelers, weary, the disciples, Jesus, the people that lived in the house who were going to host a kind of get-together everyone would be excited about the coming home. When we go back to the UK, every year or so, every other pandemic or so, we look forward to all these particular things. Yeah, there's a long time coming. We look forward to, to very specific things about being back there. We always go to a particular pub, always on the first night. We eat a particular meal. We drink a particular drink. We sometimes have two particular drinks and then, <laughs> or three, and then we walk to the, but no more, and then we walk to the same beach on the same path. We take the same family photograph outside the same door. Uh, we, we usually try and stay in the same room at the same pub. And these are our rituals about going home. It's what we do. And uh, the pub sign that has hung outside the pub for hundreds of years. It's quite a new sign. Uh, the pub itself is a thousand years old. The pub sign says, Now ye toil not. 
This is where you go to rest. No more striving. No more exhausting work. No more toil. No more frustration. We go there to rest. And the roads get narrower. And, and you fold the wing mirrors in. And you can hear the brambles hitting both of the sides of the car at the same time. It's a two-way road. 60 miles an hour is the limit. I like to push it. It's exciting. And, and, and there's this sense of... Uh, you know, every, every sort of 100 feet we descend into the valley, that, that things are slowing down apart from my driving. Things are slowing down. This is where you come to relax, to rest. There's a pint at the end of the road. And you can just imagine, I, le- I can, them anticipating this coming home as they, as they see the village, as they see the rooftop, as they see the house, as they see the door. There's this sense of, you know, we're going to go in and we're going to do our thing. Sit here, eat this, drink that relax, wash, you know, bandage our wounds. And the problem is, they've anticipated all of this stuff, but when Jesus entered Peter's house, a place of rest, now ye toil not, he saw his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. Now, scholars love this kind of thing. They speculate exactly what the fever might have been. Perhaps it was malaria, some of them say, or or maybe an infection of the lungs. It uh, could be something weird with her leg. Not the point. That is not the point at all. The point is that she cannot do what she normally does, and what she normally does is provide an experience for them when they come home. Luke, the physician, in his account, describes it as a great fever. You get the sense that she's gravely sick. There is something very bad going on. And so instead of a place of rest and refreshment, they open that door and they walk into a place of worry, a place of anxiety, a place of grief. Lying means to throw down without any real care as to where a thing lands. This lying down word, thrown down, is the same word they used for the spreading of dung. There's just a sense that you know, something has been wasted without care. She is not having a nice lie down and a cup of tea. It's not a rest. She's been driven to her bed, and she's on the outs. It's a deathbed. You wonder also, with this dung word, if we're being invited into her own mindset now with this detail. And to ask the question, how does she feel? Does she feel forgotten, maybe, and uh, useless? Does she feel ineffective, kind of surplus, like there's no place for her anymore? There is absolutely a social impact to take into account whenever someone is sick. We know this when when it's serious, uh, when it spreads, when it's a contagious sickness, people get scared. And they even avoid you a little bit if, uh, if you have that kind of an illness, as we well know. Uh, I wonder, has anyone in this room sneezed since the advent of COVID-19? There is now a liturgy for this. It goes like this. Achoo! Allergies! Like, <laughs> we back off. You don't need to worry. If we show our hands, I'm not carrying any firearms. And, and, and then, we, then we explain, it's not COVID-19, it's okay. It's just allergies. This, this 
works at all times of the year, apparently, even during thick snow. Allergies, honestly, it's just the pollen. <laughs> you can become a pariah through being sick. This is especially the case in a culture that has no cure. People get afraid when that happens. In the, the very early days of the pandemic, when it was at its most serious, if you caught COVID on top of feeling sick and being worried sick that you might die, you also had to let everyone know that you were sick. And if that was you, I bet you dreaded making that call, the contact tracing, to let everyone know that you might have infected them. There are many examples of people with COVID, especially in the early days, keeping it secret out of shame. Interestingly enough, the research shows that, that communities like ours, which are quite you know, mobile, wealthy, up-and-coming, impressive communities, actually struggled more than most with admitting to being sick. There was something about us that, that, that enhanced the shame. And so uh, towns like this kept it quiet. The, the Northwestern Journal of Medicine talks about a thing called COVID shame, and it describes it like this. It is the social anxiety and fear of being judged or shunned for having caught a disease. So although this setting is completely different to the settings of weeks one and two, a leper, a servant of a centurion, we don't even know their names. And this is a, a woman who's intimately involved in the life of, of Jesus and the disciples right now. She's just like the other two in that she is just another person all alone, forgotten on the dung heap, and she wants to be restored. Different setup, different person, different conditions, same exact problem, same basic need. We've got two simple verses, and we're told two simple things about Jesus and two simple things about the woman, and then we all get to go home. So this is it, first. He saw her. Thank you, George. It's very encouraging. <laughs> First, uh, he saw her. It's the first thing we see about Jesus. He saw her. And that word saw, it does not mean that his eyes just sort of fell upon her for a moment. Or someone said, oh, Jesus, Granny's sick. And he opened the curtain, went, hello, Granny, and then closed the curtain and backed off again. It doesn't mean that he glanced around and saw her in that momentary sense. What it means is that he saw her, he perceived her. He perceived her needs, he saw into her. It means that he took heed, that he noticed what was going on. She feels like she's been thrown in a heap. Jesus enters the house and the first thing he does is he notices. It's an amazing little hint about the care of Jesus Christ with one word. It's what you get to see when you just have two verses to look at. One verb. And uh, isn't this what you want when you're suffering, when, you, when you're laid up or laid out or laid low or laid down? Isn't it what you want? You want someone to notice, don't you? You want some, some, uh, some, some bedside manner. You want some care. And uh, if you're in the house and you're sick and, and you're upstairs in your bed and then you hear other people come in because there's a family gathering and there's a, a party and there's music and noise and laughter and you hear someone else entertaining your children and being funnier than you are and, 
and then you smell a smell of a meal being cooked, and it's your signature dish, and the aroma comes up, and you know they're botching it. Don't you want someone to come up and say, oh, we miss you. It's not as good as when you make it. You want someone to come upstairs and say, how are you? Can I get you anything? Would you like a bowl of this soup? It's terrible. Don't tell her. It's not as good as yours. Don't you want just a little bit of intimacy when everyone's there? We describe nursing as a caring profession sometimes. And it's interesting. Often when someone's been in hospital and they've received expert surgical care from a surgeon in the theater, when they recover and they leave the hospital, it's usually the nurses they write to and thank on the ward. Because these are the people that saw them every day and looked after them and formed a relationship. Bedside manner is so important. Jesus has one. We don't even know if if the others even went to the bedside. But he saw her. First he saw, second, verse 15, he touched. We just see from this one word another simple truth. That where people recoil... We back off. Jesus will often approach. Uh, When we feel unlovable, Jesus frequently increases the intimacy. He draws near to those who are are shunned and feel ashamed. And uh, maybe this is something that rings true for you. Maybe you feel unlovable. Maybe you feel a little bit avoidable. Maybe you feel ashamed. And for you, restoration is not about a physical thing, but more of a a spiritual or emotional thing. Perhaps for you, it could be something you've done in the past that has always kind of felt like a barrier for you, like you're just outside the party. It could be something that was done to you. And in that way that, that humans have, you've even blamed yourself, though you are purely speaking a victim. And that thing that was done to you has gone to work and continued to hurt you and put you on the outside. It could be that this has made you feel thrown down and discarded. And the lack of love from other people has led you to speculate there must also be a lack of love from the Father as well. Jesus draws near to people like us. That's the power of the cross. That's the beauty of the cross. And uh, it eradicates shame. The cross eradicates shame because on the cross, Christ was shamed for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. If you learn one verse, learn that one. It demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is a demonstration of Christ's willingness to approach those who really aren't right. The cross is to put us right. He sees and he touches. Every little healing is like a little snapshot of the cross of Christ, a little indicator, a preview, an exposition of the cross, an application of it perhaps. And of course, every preview of the cross is a preview of the kingdom. We're being told here that In eternity, in an eternal sense, not only does he see and touch, but he invites you intimately into a feast forever. 
The cross is a glimpse of eternity and the means by which we get there. This approach of Jesus to touch is so characteristic of the Lord. It's what he does. He has this proactive ability to notice exactly how each of us is hurting and this proclivity to approach. Two things about Jesus. He sees, he touches. Verse 15, and the fever left her. That's the healing, just five words because it's not the point. And then two things about the woman. First, she rose. It's a resurrection word. She resurrected. She rose. She's been restored. What does she do now with the restoration? That is the point of the passage. It's the so what section. What does she do as someone who has been restored? Second, she began to serve. Food, drink, beds. Who needs what? What a lovely baby. You botched the soup. Get out of the way. I'll make it better. You know, this is what's going on. Suddenly, you get the sense that there is this frenzy of activity in this restored woman who, who now can be useful. It's just going to go about the business of, of making this journey home what it should be, making this house what it should be. She's going to make the house a home. Your soup's on fire. You really don't know how to make it. There's just a scene. That's the purpose of the healing. And of course, not everyone serves. Not everyone will do this. Uh, the centurion's servant last week, we're told that he was healed. We are not told what he did with it. We have no idea what he did. We don't know if he got saved. We don't know. I mean, maybe he did. Uh, sometimes Jesus restores someone and they worship. Sometimes he restores someone and they run away and just get busy again. It's not a guarantee of salvation. The purpose of the healing, though, God's intention, is that we would be restored and our faith would increase. And as that happens, we would begin to serve Jesus, serve the kingdom, advance it, and do something. That's the purpose of the healing. Little tiny detail. Matthew says, and you can see it there in front of you, she began to serve. It's in the imperfect tense. It means that she did it and she did it some more. It doesn't say she served. You know, one off and then she was done and she never did it again. There is a tense for that. It doesn't say that she served and it was really good and the effects of it went on forever. And every sort of year they said, hey, do you remember the soup? Wasn't it awesome? There is a tense for that as well. But it doesn't say that. It says she began to serve. That is, in other words, she was resurrected, restored to a new life that was characterized by the ongoing serving of the Lord. That she entered into a new phase of, of, of working for the kingdom and working for the king. Another little detail. The word serve is the word deacon. Kind of the same word. It's a form of ministry that she does here. That's what we're being told. Uh, serving Jesus is worship. By that token, so too is serving anyone else, including serving yourself. That also is worship. So if you're restored, who are you going to worship? Who are you going to serve? For whom will you deacon? 
every single one of us who experiences restoration in any way is going to go out and begin to serve. The question is, who? Who are you going to serve if you are restored? If you might not be physical, but it might be spiritual or emotional, if you are restored in the sense that you get that thing that you have wanted all your life, or uh, you, you get the result or the offer that you've been praying for, tomorrow, will it be back to yourself and your own things and your own agenda, or will it be God's? Are you going to advance the kingdom of God or build your own empire with this restoration that you've received? There is a choice. And uh, our first lesson, you may turn to it if you wish to, is uh, from Joshua 24, quite early in the Old Testament, just after the Moses books. And you have Joshua 24, and uh, it's a classic verse on this theme. It is the classic verse. We've actually hung it on the wall of our house. There's a painting, and we've put it by the front door to remind us of the purpose of being restored. Joshua 24, verse 14, and we'll end with this thought. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord, dot, dot, dot. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there's the question. If you are going to be restored today, who are you going to serve? Who are you going to begin to serve? Will it be your idols and yourself? Or will it be the Lord? Who's going to gain from all of your efforts? Who's going to get your first and your best? Where's that going to go? My heartfelt desire is that you would serve Jesus Christ. My my authority extends only to my own house. Now, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. My job is to offer you a choice. That's all I can do. In a few moments, in a very formal way, that is precisely what we're going to do. Uh, this is one of those special days in church where we get to, to recommit and uh, we get to connect with one another and, and, and seek the Lord in a specific way. And uh, we're doing that because in the last few months, as a church, Christchurch, we've been profoundly blessed by Jesus Christ in a way that absolutely none of us saw coming, with, with the exception of Connie Hughes, who did see it coming, and we didn't believe her. But uh, it, it is a wonderful thing. And uh, it's come at the end of a hard season. The pandemic wreaked absolute destruction on the church. It laid us low. But we've been restored. This is not a given either. It's not a guarantee. It's not something that everyone gets. The Provincial Council of the Anglican Church in North America met last week, and they found that the average decline within our denomination is 30% during the pandemic. Our denomination is 30% smaller than it was two years ago. The uh, mainline denominations are faring even worse. In the next 18 months, it is believed that one in five of the most familiar towns, uh, churches in our towns, are going to close. One in five in the next 18 
months. Today, in our church, we welcome 66 new members to a church in the woods. I mean, we are in an actual forest. There have been times when more, you know, dogs in the dog park and insects and things have come in than people. And here we are with 66 new people. It's a beautiful number, you know, numerology, very important in Scripture. Uh, that, that is the year that uh, England won the World Cup. And I just feel that the Lord <laughs> has done that very, very significantly as an encouragement to those of us that have waited for a very long time for another win. Uh, this is the most people I've ever seen join, uh, not just this church, but any church that I've ever been in. And I want to say that we did not deserve this. And, and we did not achieve this. We didn't do it. There's not some place you can just go to find congregants, like all just sitting on the side looking for a church. And we, yeah, we'll get the church bus. We'll drive it. Hello, guys. Uh, we got the church for you and in the all get. That does not exist. There's not a kind of pool of spare churchgoers. Uh, there's no advertisement you can run to, to make people come through the doors if they hate Jesus. A logo won't do it. There's no technique. There's no trick. There's nothing you can do. So if Jesus has led you here, hi. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Welcome home. Welcome to a house of restoration. You've come to the right place. If we could hang a sign, now ye toil not. That, that frustration is over. This is where you belong. And we've seen restoration in this church in so many ways. We preach about it uh, when we're allowed to. Uh, if it's private and intimate, of course, we keep that private. But we've seen healings of a physical kind. We've seen healings of of marriages put back together. We've seen restorations of, of people's mental state. We've, we've, seen, we've seen release from, from oppression. We've seen all sorts of things. And it could well be that Jesus called you here to join this church because he wants to restore you today. That is highly likely, in fact. And as we see it, as we marvel at what God does in our body and what God does for each other, we're going to begin to serve him even more. And we'll be encouraged and we'll grow as we do this. This is how the gospel gets out of control. This is how the gospel spreads. People hear it, they receive it, and then they start to live it. And that attracts. It is the only thing that works. So here's what we're going to do. In a few moments, we're going to commit to the Lord again. And once again, renew those vows. And then we're going to seek his help to connect as a body, just to love one another, just to make sure we don't forget one another, but to, to see and to touch one another, to approach, to be like Jesus. And then we're going to seek his help to contribute, to serve in some way. If you don't have a ministry yet, there's an opportunity to take one of the little cards that you'll find on the table out there and just read about the ways that you could serve in this church, and then try it out. It, it doesn't matter if you get it wrong. It actually doesn't matter at all. And uh, if you don't do it, I'll do it, and I will get it wrong. But it, it doesn't matter. Um, someone spilt wine on the Lord's table. You know, the white cloth was stained with this kind of crimson blood. It was like, oh, well, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, 
I mean, I don't, that's not 50 sermon illustrations right there. I thanked them. Fantastic. They blotted it up and the stain was taken away. It's another sermon. But, you know, if you get something wrong, I'll just preach about it. You'll be fine. <laughs> but I do want us to be that kind of a church. I mean, if you spill a drink at home, are you, like, are you mortified and you think you're fat? No, of course not. It's just get another one. That's what church is. It's your home. Come and trash the place. It's okay. It, it's better that we use it. It's better that we serve. It's, it's better that we do that because, because it invites people into something that's alive. So um, 90 of you signed up in the fall to join the service team. And, and I want to thank you for the way that that has created a culture change and, and, and been a part of that story of 66 people wanting to be here. They're connected uh, because it's how the gospel works. I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to invite us to stand. Let's stay seated while I lead us in prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we just thank you for days like this and uh, for the baptism to come in our next service as well. We, we praise you for those who've received salvation in this season and given their life to you. We praise you, God, for those of us who have a new lease on life, who, in a sense, feel resurrected or restored. And Lord, we pray for those who, who are perhaps laid low. For any of us, Lord Jesus, that feel a little bit unloved, would we be assured of your love? And then would we see that through the life of this church? As you breathe more and more life of your Holy Spirit through us, Lord, would we reflect you and, and uh, begin to serve with that restoration that we receive? In your precious name, amen.